was the founding uh, chief executive of the National Football Museum. I ran the National Football Museum for 20 years, setting it up first in Preston and then creating the new version of the National Football Museum in Manchester in 2012, where we attracted over half a million visitors a year. It was a great success. Uh, in 2017, I moved on uh, to a new venture. Um, having left the National Football Museum, I'm still involved in football and museums and academia. I'm on the editorial board of Soccer and Society. I co-edited the Routledge Handbook of Football Studies. I'm still writing academic papers on football. And I also got asked by Bloomsbury to write a popular but academically rigorous uh, book on football recently, which has just come out. And that, so it's published by Bloomsbury. And it's What You Think You Know About Football Is Wrong, The Global Game's Greatest Myths and Untruths, available from all good booksellers. The book I, I was delighted to be asked about this, and the book I'd like to talk about is the first ever football book that I owned, that I bought, probably in about 1967, where, 66 or 67, um, bought with my pocket money. And so really important to me, whether it's the book that led me to become a football historian and director uh, of the National Football Museum, quite possibly. Um, the book is... The Story of Football, uh, a Ladybird book, which I bought for two shillings and sixpence, which is uh, 12.5p in today's money. And it's long been one of my uh, treasured possessions. The only thing I'll say is I kept all my Ladybird books, um, but I lost the football one. So the version I have now in front of me is a reprint. It's not my original one which to find would be a holy grail for me because having the real original book that I bought uh, would be very powerful. Not sure it's ever going to turn up at my parents' house, but there you go. Is that the one with the, uh, is it uh, Tottenham Hotspur versus Sheffield United or Sunderland in front of it? Yes, correct. Yes. So these, I mean, what's incredibly appealing about the book is the beautiful illustrations. I think it first came out in 1964. And also the thing about Ladybird books uh, in general is the beautiful illustrations, but the very, very carefully written text, uh, which does to some extent stand the test of time, apart from obviously uh, the sexist assumptions in it. Line one of the story of football, nearly all boys like to play football. Um, <laughs> And, of course, in 1966, 67, in my, I was seven, uh, playground, infant, infant and junior school playground, the girls did not play football. Uh, even if they wanted to, they didn't. Um, obviously, we've come a long way uh, since then. But this book meant a lot to me, probably inspired by England's win in the 1966 World Cup final. I loved history. I loved Ladybird books and, therefore, the history of football, which I was beginning to get interested in, inspired by England's World Cup in 1966 when I was six years old. Um, looking back, that will be the reason I, I bought this book. And the thing about the, the Ladybird books as well is that you're completely correct. Like, you know, they're, they're so well written um, that they're accessible to anyone at any age from maybe six or seven upwards. 
Yes, they're an example of museum text. Museum text has to be the same. So in the Ladybird book, for each part of the story, you've only got 100 words, maybe. 150 words, yeah. it's got to be exact. But I note that the author, V. Southgate, Vera Southgate, com, had got two degrees. Um, yeah. So, you know, Ladybird used people who were uh, experts in their field, at, at least were academic. Whether this person actually knew anything about the history of football but had to, or had to go and look it up um, would, would require... Actually, I'm going to look into that, see if I can find out who, who the person was who wrote it. Um, it's got some of the myths about the early part of football in it. The, for example, the, the William Webb Ellis picking up the ball myth from rugby school. But it will have been based on pretty well on the, on the known scholarship of knowledge of football uh, history in those days, which obviously academically, uh, didn't yet exist. I remember um, it, it's Vera Southgate is the V Southgate. And the only reason I know that is because I remember going through, like, you know, a, I think I'm going through a midlife crisis, Kevin, and I was going through stuff that I loved when I was a kid. And I had the uh, the Ladybird, you know, book of um, well-loved tales or all, you know, all yep. the old things. And it was, and, it was, and, and she's the lady uh, who wrote all of those really classic Ladybird books. And oh, I said, wonderful! Just so think it's about a woman. Yeah, and just think about the number of people that she got into reading, as well as football. Yes, yes, because um, my I bought this, and I bought the story of cricket, uh, which is a I've still got that one, and that one's really important to me as well. Uh, they were my twin loves uh, uh, in sport as a child. Uh, but yeah, it, it got you into other subjects. I mean, the first one I bought actually was King Alfred the Great, who was I, I was obsessed with. I bought the Ladybird history books. Um, so, but uh, then inspired into football. But I love the way it treats it historically. So actually, I looked at it last night, of course, and you don't get so Ladybird books are the printed on one sheet because they came out of the rationing of paper in the war, and so they were printed on one actual sheet. And you don't get to 1863 until page 26, halfway through the book. Wow, it, it, half of it is the story uh, of football up to that point. So back to Shrove Tuesday games and uh, village games and the royals uh, banning it um, because of the need for archers. So um, yeah, uh, we we only get to we only get to association football halfway through this book, which I think is quite extraordinary. In these days, where television has you know become the primary mode of consumption for a lot of people across the world, and you know Premier, you know English football didn't start before nineteen ninety two, um, and you see that the, the the World Cup and Champions League and and those global competitions has become preeminent. Why do you think that people should remember the history and prehistory of football? Why is it important? Um, well, why is any any form of history important? Uh, uh, of course, I, I think there is a danger, particularly with this phrase in Premier League history. It's almost a Stalinist tradition of history, as though nothing exists before then. Um, and of course, all the great clubs in the Premier League have have. Fantastic histories long before 1992. Why have we got this date where we go best goal in Premier League history? Um, you know, as if football uh, began then. Um, so you do need to take uh, you do need to take uh, that long view. Um, that's just what historians do if we're going to understand 
the trends and development uh, in the game. How do you think we're going to keep alive those moments that don't exist on on film, that don't exist in television and don't exist on YouTube or don't exist even as a Pathé newsreel? You know, I think well, about you know, I think about important things. You know, whenever whenever England are beaten by Hungary or or you know, really important dates. How do, how do we make sure that people understand the significance of them? It's a very good question because even when you look back to England being beaten by Hungary, uh, which isn't mentioned in this book, uh, there's one page in the book actually about the game spreading around the world, uh, and interestingly, it focuses on India. Um, uh, and Indians playing barefoot. Um, I think it says because they can't, can't afford boots. It does talk about the spread of the game, but it is very English-centred. Take take um, uh, England being beat by Hungary, 3-6 at Wembley in 53. Well, we've got film of that, so that tends to get promoted. But the when England lose 7-1 to Hungary in Budapest the following year... Um, I think because there's a relative shortage of film of that one, um, that's kind of not been airbrushed out of history, but it's much less well known. So you're absolutely right. The danger with the sport is we remember what we can go back and find film clips for. Uh, And obviously, therefore, obviously the media and the media reporting on um, is, is very important for our understanding, but you can't be led by the fact, well, there isn't film of that. As you say, we lead, you lead you a situation, well, no film survives from that, so it didn't happen. What, what should we be archiving in the future to maintain you know, our, a realistic history of, of contemporary football for future generations? I'm thinking about things like social media. How do we make sense of trying to archive everything that comes out of that? Brilliant question. Obviously, that's a big challenge for museums and archives, places like the National Football Museum, but any museum or archive that collects uh, material relating to football and its culture, uh, collecting artefacts and photographs. Uh, when you, you go back to the 19th century, that's all you've got, um, uh, which makes life easier. You've still got to make a selection, but the explosion in digital content in the last decade or so is a big challenge to museums on any subject that, that that's collect, collect contemporary collecting that's collecting from society now and they're all struggling with it they're all thinking how on earth do we do this the british library and others are struggling with this trying to find a solution thinking it through how on earth do we select so yes um how do you do it how do you store it uh but do you collect Websites? Uh, do you cl- do you pick a certain number? I I don't I don't know. Um, and if I was still uh, director of the National Football Museum, I'd I'd be having to consider this. Um, think of all the social media output on football. Think about the range of it. Uh, think about um, so first of all the practicalities of that and the selection. But also we know that there is a lot of obscene and vitriolic material on Twitter, say, between football fans of different clubs, some of which is racist, homophobic, deeply insensitive. But in a way, a museum has a responsibility to collect that, to reflect, not to censor it, but to go, this this material was out there. Um, So, gosh, really, really difficult challenge as we've moved to we, museums still have to collect the physical 
of course, but as as a lot of football culture is now effectively in social media and online, reflect collecting and reflecting that for the future is is going to be really complex and deserves m- much greater thought. I think the the issue for a lot. I don't think museums are engaged enough with this yet. Sports museums. I know that Gene Williams and Kieran Maguire's tweets are being archived, aren't they? Um, if you think about just the output of somebody like Kieran, who's got his podcast and his Twitter and all the writing and stuff, it must make it really difficult to try and select who the kind of arbiters are, or who the gatekeepers are, or who the people that 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 need to be preserved for posterity to you know to capture a bit of the history of the game as it happened in this point in time. Yes, absolutely. And of course, but of course, museums always have to select. You have a rigorous collecting policy, you know, fairly obviously. You don't collect everything to do with football. Uh, You have to make a selection. You have to have a collecting policy that is authorised ultimately by your governing body, uh, which you then review from time to time. But of course, then there are nuanced decisions within that. So you, but you're absolutely right. Who, who do we choose? Who do we choose? Do you choose on the basis of you take Gary Lineker because he's got the most followers and has the most impact? Or are you looking for a what's a, what's a typical fan? You know, the, you, there is no archetype. Um, so all I can say is you've raised a really, really interesting question for which there is no easy answer. Um, but but museums and archives have to find a way to to, to do that. Yeah.